I don't know if you've ever lived through a seismic event, an earthquake. Um, probably some of you have out in California, those di different places. I've only lived through one myself, and it was, it was frankly, it was pretty pathetic. We were in Virginia, and uh, we were far, far away from the epicenter, and it was probably only a 3.2, 3.7, something like that. It was, it was, like I said, it was pretty pathetic. But my enduring memory of this earthquake is I was sitting down, and I thought something was funny, like I felt there's something going on, and I looked at the wall, and the wall was like a pond when you drop a pebble into it. The wall was doing this. It was undulating back and forth. It was waving, like rippling. And I, I'm not a builder. I don't know much about walls, but I do know one thing. They're not supposed to move. <laughs> They're definitely not supposed to ripple. So this incredibly solid wall that I'm looking at, made out of cinder blocks, nine foot tall, is waving back and forth. I give you that illustration of, of this minor, for in all, in all of the grand scheme of history, a very minor earthquake. But we, but we have that illustration to help us understand what is happening in Psalm chapter 11 here. Because this deals with a seismic event in David's life. <clears throat> and as we, as we get into it, you'll see this. But this doesn't just shake David's walls. This actually destroys the foundation of his life, or he feels like the, the foundation of his life is being destroyed. <clears throat> so let's look at verses 1 through 3. And I've given this the heading, just a crisis of confidence. A crisis of confidence. Before we get to the crisis, what causes David to think that the foundations are being destroyed, before we get to there, we need to see David's confidence, and he says this right up front. Verse 1, first line, in the Lord I take refuge. Now, if you're reading in the ESV, you'll notice that the word Lord there <clears throat> is capitalized. It's in big L, little O-R-D, but they're all capital letters. That's speaking of a certain name of God, something that we in English would call Yahweh, or these four letters, Y-H-W-H. Yahweh. And this is the name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush, and it's reiterated in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, when Yahweh pronounces uh, to Moses that I am. So when David writes this, when David writes this psalm, and he says he takes refuge in Yahweh, we, he and we should be thinking of God's character, his word. David's declaring that he's taken refuge in the God of Israel, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and compassionate. This is the God who is a keeper of covenants. He's the deliverer from Egypt. He's the opener of the Red Sea. He's the conqueror of Canaan. He's the raiser of deliverers. He's the crowner of kings. And David says that it's in that God, Yahweh, that he takes refuge. You and I, who call ourselves believers or Christians, we take refuge in the same God. So here's David making this general statement. This, we could give it a, a life axiom, a life axiom. And he says, I take refuge in Yahweh. <clears throat> now, if you know anything about axioms, they look great, like on letterheads and up on the wall with a coat of arms. They look great, printed out, nice script. 
But the problem is that eventually your axiom is going to get tested. And David says he takes refuge in Yahweh. So is there something that could ever threaten the refuge that he's found in Yahweh? Well, look at verse number two. Or I should say, look at, look at the next phrase in verse number one, 1b. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. This crisis that's described, especially in verse number two, there's this description of David's enemies. And there's three things that these enemies are. They bend back the bow. These enemies are powerful. They've fitted the arrow to the string. These enemies are prepared. And the third thing is, they shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. These enemies are perilous or they're deadly. Now, you might think shooting in the dark, you have a chance to miss the person you're shooting at, right? That's not what David is saying. David or this one who's speaking to David is saying that they're waiting for you in the dark. It's like you're, you're going along on a night journey and they're going to ambush you. They're waiting for you at the end of a dark alley that kind of waiting for you in the dark. So they're perilous. They're going to ambush you. This speaker who's, who's speaking to David is saying, David, you're in for it. You're done for. You're dead meat. Why don't you flee to your safe place? But it gets worse than that. It's not just the enemies that might get David. This crisis escalates in verse number three. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The foundations being destroyed is not describing this waving wall that I was talking about in this minor earthquake. Destroyed here is a verb that indicates that the, there's a complete ruin of the foundations. It's talking about them being pulled down brick by brick, stone by stone. It's the foundation of David's world is going to be turned upside down. And the thought is finished, if the foundations are destroyed, it's, the thought is finished with this defeated question, well, what can the righteous do? What hope, what hope do we have? And the answer that the speaker is giving to David is back in one, the end of chapter, or the end of verse one, which is, you should flee to the mountain like a bird. So what could cause David's whole world to turn upside down? What could cause his foundation to be pulled out from underneath him and cause him to run for the hills to save himself? You'll notice at the, the beginning of Psalm 11, there's just this notation to the choir master, a Psalm of David. Usually, or sometimes, there'll be a longer superscription, and it'll tell us when, when David wrote this or why David wrote this. It doesn't say that specifically on this psalm, but most commentators think that David is writing the psalm in response to King Saul seeking to kill him. So I want you, to, for a moment, to see it from David's perspective. King Saul, the one anointed by Samuel that indicates Yahweh's approval of Saul's king, the leader of Israel's armies, the victorious battle commander, the one who sits on the throne and is therefore the highest civil authority and the, and the 
the highest of, of the justice and law system, the one who has lavished praise on David for killing Goliath, the one who's given David his daughter in marriage. That one is seeking to kill David. Everything that David thought he knew is all of a sudden on its head. That's what a foundational destruction kind of crisis looks like. It's all gone wrong. So what David thought was there to help him in a moment of crisis, it's twisted to the point of being destroyed. The authorities, they're on the side of the wicked. Society, they call evil good and good evil. Justice, it rewards the evildoer through perverse judgments. All of these have lost their ever-loving minds. It's as if the authorities, society, and justice are all destroyed. And that means that David thought there was a foundation, and now there isn't a foundation. These things that he looked to for stability are now not able to keep him safe or keep him from being harmed. So is it time for David to save himself and flee for the hills. Now, let me pause for a moment and let me illustrate what this would look like today. And I don't think it's very hard to illustrate. In fact, I literally just opened up the news uh, this week and just wrote down some headlines for you of things that we thought were, we thought were stable, and foundational, and how they have all gone the other way. Here's one headline. Actually, I'll give you a series of headlines. New UN-backed legal recommendations normalize sex with minors. Education secretary refuses to define woman. Drag queens may read to kids in a Louisiana library. Christian charity workers face potential jail time and fine after speaking out about leaving LGBT lifestyle. For some of us, the seismic shift, this foundation-destroying moment, we see it in the societal norms. They're shifting away from Christian values or moral values, and it's left you wondering is it time to head for the hills? These temporary means like government and society and culture that were intended by God to help us in fulfilling our God-given responsibilities, they're now actively opposed and antagonistic to God. There's another way to, to illustrate this seismic shift. Sometimes it happens not just in our society, it happens in our personal life. Your foundation has been shaken. Let me give you a few examples here. For some, your marriage, your spouse, who's been your foundation, or who you thought was your foundation. One day you wake up and you realize they've departed, emotionally or physically or through divorce. Teens, children, your parents, the ones you thought would always be there, now one or both of them have hurt you or abused you or abandoned you or simply their marriage ended. Parents, that sweet two-year-old, he's grown into a not-so-sweet 22-year-old. And that child, which you invested years in emotionally, 
And relationally, he doesn't come around anymore. And he's walked away from your faith. Harder still, what if your spouse or your child or a loved one hasn't just left but has died? And in your estimation and in others' estimation, untimely death. Your foundation, the person or relationship where you found stability is gone. For some of us, the seismic shift has happened not just in our personal life, but in our personal identity. The loss of a job leaves you wondering, who am I if I no longer have the job or that title? Or the loss of ability to do things due to a medical problem or just through the process of aging has left you wondering, who am I if I can't do what I used to do? Your foundation, the stable ground for which you're which you evaluated your life, it's been destroyed. So when the foundations are destroyed, when life flips upside down on you, when the seismic crisis moment comes, what can the righteous do? What can the righteous hope to accomplish? Now, if this isn't all bad enough, there's one more level to this crisis because we have to identify the speaker here who's talking to David. So look back again at verse 1b. David says, how can you say to my soul? So we have three options here of who may be speaking. The first is this may be a well-intentioned, a well-intentioned or a concerned friend. David has these friends in his life and they're saying, save yourself. Take matters into your own hands. Do what's best for you. And we all have these kind of friends in our lives. I'm talking about the moral co-worker, the nice neighbor, the well-meaning in-law, or frankly, the pragmatic Christian who cares about you but thinks little about your commitment to Christ or even any commitment to Christ. Their advice is well-meant. It might even seem wise, but it's uninformed by faith. Their desire is to be helpful. Their, Their advice might be paraphrased like this. Hey, take care of yourself. What you're facing will destroy you. It's every man for himself. It's every woman for herself. No one will take care of you like you will take care of you. So save yourself. While this would seem like wisdom, it rejects the assertion that David made in verse 1a, in the Lord I take refuge, and this advice is absent. It's absent of a Godward perspective. There's a second option here. There's a taunting mocker, an enemy, and this enemy hears or sees you in crisis and has come to throw gasoline on the dumpster fire that's present in your life. His mocking advice might go like this, hey, hey. Why don't you fly away to your special place, to your religion, to your God? Because you're about to be dead meat. And I'm going to watch. I'm going to watch as you get stepped on like old chewing gum over and over and over again for the rest of your days. So why don't you run away, save yourself? This advice 
is mocking any reliance on God that you would have thought about expressing. And we all have people like this in our lives too. Whether they hate you personally or not, they hate the idea of God more. And they relish crises in believers' lives. They're the ones who can't wait to pour salt in the wound and mock Christianity or tear down the view of God as wise and just and caring. Their advice is antagonistic to a Godward perspective. Now, there's one more option. You might be thinking, there's friends, there's enemies, who else could there be? Look back at verse 1b. How can you say, where does David say this hits him? How can you say, to my soul? Most times, the voice that causes you to doubt, that causes a crisis in confidence, is not primarily coming from the outside. This third possibility here is none other than David's own inner thoughts, his own heart. So others, they can be the instigators of doubt, but the crisis reaches, reaches that moment when your own soul, your own heart, begins to question what is going on. Others may influence, they may suggest, they may start the train down the tracks, but the thing that keeps the train chugging along is your own heart. Your own advice is autonomous and self-focused. And I think that David is struggling most here with his own inner thoughts, with his heart, instigated by an external source but ultimately fueled by his own crisis of confidence based on the circumstances he faces. He declared his refuge is in Yahweh, but his heart, his emotions, his circumstances are all compelling him to say, save yourself. So when the foundations are destroyed, when life flips upside down on you, when the seismic crisis moment comes, what then? Should David save himself by running for the hills? And the question for us is the same. Should Christians retreat and just save ourselves? The answer is going to be found in verses 4 through 7. But before we leave verses 1 through 3, I want to be clear what we are actually seeing here. David's heart, David's heart mistakes temporary means for ultimate ends. And the result is a crisis of confidence. David mistakes temporary means for ultimate ends. And the result is a crisis of confidence. So what is the answer then? David's answer to his own heart is in verses 4 through 7. Look at verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of men. David is going to instruct his own heart. Instead of letting his heart lead him, David is going to instruct his heart by reminding it that Yahweh, the judge, is in control. How does he do this? Verse 4a says that, The Lord, Yahweh, is in his holy temple. God's perspective is, first of all, it's holy. It's holy. 
The most helpful definition I can give you for holy is this, perfect and separate. Perfect and separate. God's holy perspective means that this is the only perspective that takes everything into account. Not just the immediate, but the eternal. Not just the means, but also the ends. And not just the individual, but the doxological. Now, that's a big word, doxological. (laughs) It just means for the glory of God. So the contrast is between the individual and the doxological. It's, between, it's the contrast between what is good for me versus what brings glory to God. That's God's perspective. He can tell the difference between what's just best for me and what would bring the most glory to God. Only God's perspective is perfect and complete and whole. And that kind of perspective then makes it separate from all other perspectives. Even the wisest human is still, in the end, only human. But God is not part of creation, so even his perspective is not as a created being, but as the creator, in which case, only he can share the true meaning of any circumstance. God's perspective is not just holy, But verse 4b continues that the Lord's throne is in heaven. Yahweh is sovereign. His perspective is holy and sovereign. Yahweh rules and overrules in the affairs of men. He holds absolute authority to do whatever he pleases. So let that sink in for a moment. The one who knows all things perfectly. Not constrained by human perspective. That one is also the only one who can do whatever needs to be done to affect the circumstances to the end he desires. The one who knows all is also the one who commands all. So Yahweh's perspective, or Yahweh is, holy and sovereign. The second thing here is that Yahweh is imminent and transcendent. The judge is imminent and transcendent. There's a a second layer to these two lines that we just read. That line in verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. Yahweh is in his holy temple. In ancient times, the temple was where you went to meet God. Now, I fully affirm, as does all of the scripture, that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere all at once in all of his being. But the reason for the temple and the tabernacle before it was to show that God was dwelling with his people. And so David is saying, by saying that Yahweh's in his holy temple, David is saying that Yahweh is with me. Yahweh is near to me. We describe that as imminent, that God is near to us. And at the same time, the next phrase, the next line says that the Lord's throne is in heaven. Yahweh's throne is located in heaven. God is also above and outside of our perceptions. And this is what we call transcendent. So God is above and outside us. But these two things together create this, this beautiful picture. It draws us close to God without the air of deifying man or humanizing God. God is near us, but God is also far above us. So David's reminding himself of who God is. 
Third thing that David reminds himself of here is that Yahweh is a judge of righteousness. Look, Look at verse number five. The Lord tests the righteous. What is this holy and sovereign, this imminent and transcendent God doing? Well, at the end of verse four, it says that he sees, his eyes see, and his eyelids test the children of men. There's two things that God is doing. It may only seem like one thing when we read it in our English Bible, but there's two things that God is doing. First, God is observing. God, his eyes see. It just means literally taking in information. He just looks out and he sees everything that's going on. This is kind of a quantitative process. He just, it's all of the data, everything coming in all at once. But it also says that his eyelids test the children of men. This is more qualitative. So God doesn't just take in data. He analyzes the data. He examines what he sees. This is the action of sifting through everything he sees, determining what is the most important or relevant, or determining the true nature of things. Job 23.10 uses the same word when he says, Job says, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. This is the, the picture of an assayer or uh, someone who takes gold and melts it down and scrapes off the, the impurities off the top. He's looking for what is true gold. That's what God is doing. That's what the judge is doing when he examines the children of man. Look over at Psalm 139. Flip over to Psalm 139 real quick in your Bibles. <clears throat> Psalm 139, the end of the psalm, verses 23 and 24. Because David returns to these kind of themes throughout the psalms. Again, we have a psalm of David in Psalm 139. 23 and 24 says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. For what purpose? To see if there be any grievous way in me or any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Yahweh, the judge, sees not only what we want him to see, he sees not only what we can see, but he sees everything, even the things that we think we can hide. Look back at Psalm 139, verse 12, a couple verses before David says, search me and know me. He says this, verse 12, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. See, God doesn't just look at what we present to him. God looks at everything. God doesn't just take in raw data. He examines it, and he gets to the truth and to the heart of what is going on. So David's reminding his own heart that there's a judge who observes all his thoughts, words, attitudes, actions, But not only that, this judge is examining all of those things. He's testing all of those things, and he'll find out the true nature of David's heart. Verse 5, at the very beginning of the verse, there's a little bit of a translation, just minor translation issue. We could translate this, the verse, the beginning of the verse this way. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. 
See, God doesn't just look for the righteous and test them. (laughs) God looks at all people, righteous and wicked, and he tests all of them the same. All right? So he's examining, he's testing all people, and he knows the difference between the righteous and the wicked. That examination, this examination, leads to the second or to two characteristics of Yahweh, the judge. The first is that Yahweh is righteous. How does David know that Yahweh is righteous? Yahweh hates the one who loves violence. Verse number five, the end of verse five. Yahweh hates the one who loves violence. Violence here is not a word of accident. It's not an an accidental harming of someone else. This is not This is not just you bump into someone or you back into someone. This kind of violence is actually talked about in Genesis 6, 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. In response to that, God sends the flood. So this judge, the one who who hates violence, he doesn't approve of it, he doesn't condone it. But this judge doesn't just hate violence, Look closely, it says that his soul hates the one who loves violence. So it's not just the violence God condemns, nor the violent one. It's the one whose heart desires and rejoices in violence. See, God doesn't just observe and see who's doing wrong. He looks into our hearts and sees our heart attitude And he makes his determination, his judgment, based on that. So you might ask, according to what standard does this judge make his determination? If Yahweh is capricious or vacillating or he's wishy-washy, one day he thinks something's good, the next day he thinks something's bad, how can we ever measure up? How can we ever hope to be found righteous? But David says very clearly, that Yahweh is righteous. Yahweh is righteous. Look at verse 7a. For the Lord, Yahweh, is righteous. The standard is not outside of God. The standard is God himself. If God had a standard outside of himself, then he would make that standard ultimate. But God is not the possessor of truth. He is the truth. God's not the possessor of life. He is the life. God's not just the possessor of a way. He is the way. And so here, Yahweh does not just possess moral rightness. He himself is the standard for righteousness. So to declare something righteous, we would be saying about that thing or person that it measures up to the standard of God. Remember Jesus' response to the rich young ruler. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. If you've heard that, if you read that, sometimes it's baffling. On the one hand, it seems as if Jesus is saying, don't call me good. But what I think Jesus is really making the point to this rich young, young ruler, he's making the point that you're not even aware of the truth that you're saying when you say good teacher. Your standard What is it? What is good according to your standard? God alone is the standard for good. 
So David is reminding his own heart of the same truth here. Because his heart is leading him to doubt the righteousness of Yahweh the judge. Yahweh is righteous. There's a second character quality of Yahweh the judge. <clears throat> the second character quality is that his judgments are, I'll try to pronounce this word, retributive. Retribution, retributive. Okay, I think it's up on the screen so you can spell it. All right, this may be a new word or a new concept, but what I mean by retributive is that the punishment fits the crime and the reward fits the virtue. Look at verse number six. David is appealing to Yahweh, the judge, for due punishment on the wicked. Verse six says this, let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. This imagery that we find in verse six should remind us of the one that we see in one of the most famous judgments of the Bible, Sodom and Gomorrah. It was destroyed by fire and brimstone, and David is essentially calling down fire and brimstone on the wicked. Now, I realize this may sound really foreign to our ears, but there's an there's a illustration of God's retributive judgment that's found in the book of Nahum. Nahum the prophet has been commissioned by Yahweh to foretell the destruction of Nineveh, that same Nineveh that came to repentance 100 to 120 years before during the events of the book of Jonah. In Nahum, the first two and a half chapters of Nahum describe the complete devastation of the city and the destruction of the armies of Assyria. And it's brutal. It's harsh to our ears and our consciences. But then Nahum 3.10, or 3.8 through 10 says this. Are you Nineveh, or Assyria, are you Nineveh, Assyria, are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart of sea, <clears throat> and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put in the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street, for her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. Now, I know you, I, we're not going to go through the book of Nahum, but who destroyed Thebes? Take a guess. Nineveh did. Nineveh did that. Who put their citizens into exile? Who dashed their infants in pieces? Who sold and enslaved the great men of the city? And Nineveh did that. And now Yahweh, the righteous judge, is proclaiming through Nahum, you know what your destruction will look like. You'll recognize it because you dealt that way with your own enemies. God's punishment to the wicked Assyrians and to Nineveh fits the crime of what they did to Thebes. The violence they perpetrated on other nations is going to be paid back in kind by Yahweh. But this is also true for the righteous. It says that God loves the righteous. He loves righteous deeds. Now, we all know, or we should know, that there are none righteous, no, not one. That all are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. That all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to their own way. So, if in the end, our own works 
fall short of God's glory, we end up in unrighteousness and turning to our, our own way. How can we ever hope to please God and to practice righteousness? Well, we have a standard to which we can go, and that standard is God himself. Graciously, God has told us all that we need to do to please him, and we find it in his word in the Bible. Hebrews 11.6 says this, without faith, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. How can we practice righteousness? We do it by what the Bible calls faith. Habakkuk 2.4 says that the just, the righteous one, will live by faith. So what's a simple definition of faith? Faith is this. It's taking God at his word. Here's an example. When God's word says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, then we do that. <laughs> we act in faith. God's word promises I take God at his promise, at his word. So here's the key. Psalm 11, verse 7, right at the end of this psalm, says that Yahweh is righteous. He loves those who do what is righteous. And in doing what is righteous, the standard for which is God and his character and his commands, in doing what is righteous, they prove their faith in God. They've heard God, and they take him at his word, and they respond. The result of that kind of living, living by faith, hearing what God says and doing it, it leads to this final, ultimate refuge, that the upright shall behold his face. What a contrast. That we, from what we saw in verses 1 through 3, David's eyes, his heart are fixated upon the circumstances and on the enemies, the upside-down world. The seismic shift was a result of the destruction of his temporary means that he thought were ultimate ends. But now as David instructs his own heart to consider Yahweh, the righteous judge, and God's perspective and his God's character, there's another seismic shift. The righteous, those who trust and obey, those who live by their faith, their gaze will reset from their destroyed foundations to the righteous judge, where we find our sure foundation and our ultimate refuge. There's a companion kind of culmination to this psalm sentiment in David's life, and it's found in 2 Samuel 22. This comes at the end of David's life. Let me read it for you. Just the first four verses, the whole, the whole chapter is, is the psalm, but just the first four verses says that David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. David says this, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I'm saved from my enemies. You can hear the same themes, refuge, being saved. And if we continued through the rest of the chapter, you would see that the foundations that are destroyed in Psalm chapter 11 
Those foundations aren't destroyed by Yahweh in Psalm 22. They're shaken by Yahweh. (laughs) Because the foundations are temporary. Only Yahweh is eternal. Only, Only Yahweh is the place where we can find ultimate refuge and a sure foundation. And so... In 2 Samuel 22, this psalm is placed at the end of David's life. And I think it's placed there because David's testimony is not of fear or being overwhelmed by his enemies, but the very thing he professed, refuge in Yahweh, he's truly found in Yahweh. So we come to our our big idea. When we mistake temporary things, for ultimate security, we must reset our eyes on the righteous judge who is our refuge and our foundation. When we mistake temporary things for ultimate security, we must reset our eyes on the righteous judge who is our refuge and our foundation. That's our challenge, to live in a world in which things are going crazy. And not put our hope in temporary things, but to look to God as our only sure refuge and foundation. Let's pray.